System hackers are breaking the systems for profit. Before, it was about intellectual curiosity and pursuit of knowledge and thrill. Now, it's big business. That's a quote, Kevin Mitnick, expert digital systems hacker and perpetrator of the first high-profile data theft case in the US. Sentenced in 1999 to four and a half years in the Who's Gal, plus eight months, solitary confinement. Greetings to you and all the ships at sea. I'm Ted Green, 15-year tech industry veteran, and you're listening to Bolt Bucket, a waggish gab and sometimes rant on technology in our lives. From mankind's past, the present, and our future. Dad, can you fix my cyborg? Tonight's show, it's Bolt Buckets, Episode 2, Your Personal Data Security. This in honor of October being National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So, you live a digital life, I hear. You use search engines by the minute while living on your smartphone. You have a social media account, of course, and you carry a credit card and do online banking. You have some nasty private stuff on file in your company's HR department database? Maybe. Been to a hospital or doctor lately? Hey, Ted, that's private stuff. You sure about that? And you have embraced public cloud storage services. Oh, you are so screwed. You crazy, mad human. Once living the simple life in a cave with a view in Lascaux, France, 17,000 years ago, you've evolved into a smartphone-slinging, biometric-wearing, text-as-interpersonal-communication-digital thing. A life where all you do, say, write... Everywhere you go, eat, drink, and feel, even the video of your son's soccer tryout, or that selfie of you and what's his name doing, yeah, in, in the back of, okay, that's all very likely available for the whole world to see. It's your very own not-so-private digital breadcrumb trail. Let's get one thing out of the way right up front. Most of your life's assumed private bits, the parts that you think only you have knowledge of, are now very likely known by at least one other person in the world right now. Fact. And as I'll illustrate, the NSA is the least of your worries. In this episode, I'll tell you what to do about this and assure you that the sky is not falling. Not yet, anyway. And in fact, some of this might actually be a very good thing. 2015 has yet to pass, so let's review some of this year's personal data security breaches and thefts so far. Not one, but two major Blue Cross and Blue Shield providers. What was stolen? Names, birth dates email addresses, and subscriber information, as well as social security numbers, bank account information, addresses, and other information. A multi-bank cyber heist via ATM machines by a highly organized international theft ring. One billion dollars with a B known to be stolen so far. They're still counting. An Ivy League university, plus one of our largest state universities. Data stolen? Substantial, but unpublicized. Ah, the privilege of being a very profitable nonprofit. Books closed on that one, folks. United States Army National Guard. Not the Rhode Island National Guard. The complete United States Army National Guard. What was taken and exposed? The Social Security numbers? home addresses, and other personal information of approximately 850,000 current and former National Guard members. Anthem Healthcare Provider. 
Their data breach exposed an astonishing 80 million patient and employee records, including names, date of birth, social security numbers, healthcare ID numbers, home addresses, email addresses, employment information, and income data. The federal government's Office of Personnel Management, and in case you're wondering, this is essentially the federal government's HR department. Two major attacks in 2015. The total amount of personal data stolen is close to 25 million federal government employees. The perpetrator? A foreign nation. T-Mobile via their Experian data housing partner. The heist? 15 million T-Mobile customers' social security numbers, along with their names and addresses. Now you're sitting there, especially those of you college age or younger, thinking, well, that's just big corporate stuff, government stuff. I'm off that radar screen. That's the man getting his just desserts. Yeah, well, you know that cool app you're using to liven up your time during that sleeper of a lecture on Noam Chomsky sentence diagramming? Popular apps like Angry Birds and Draw Something. They're well known to, upon installation, harvest your phone's information. A lot of information. Stuff like call logs, carrier info, device ID, and phone number. Your contacts, email addresses of everyone on your device. In fact, the app Draw Something has been known to pass on your phone numbers to advertisers. As of this recording, it's not quite clear what the Angry Birds team's been doing with your phone's info. But I don't think they're using up their data storage space as a Silicon Valley strategy to pick up nerdy chicks. <laughs> See what I did there? Chicks, Angry Birds thing. Yeah. Anyway, and those social media apps... Did you really think all the stuff you post on your favorite social site is known only by yourself and close friends? Did you know in many cases you relinquish ownership rights to the stuff you post to social media sites? No, you didn't, did you? Let's drill down a bit deeper on some of this. Now, about the data on that mobile phone in your hand right now. Yeah, those contacts, social media content, the photos, your location. Exhibit A, now listen up. This year... 2015, a self-described artist harvested photos on Instagram taken by other Instagram users. Photos of common people and sold them at a gallery in New York City, some for as much as $90,000. He never asked the other Instagram users for permission to use their photos. Never. $90,000. I won't name this Deschamps wannabe because it'll only give him undeserved notoriety, but check this out. He's got legal cover on this. He's allowed to take and sell these photos under fair use legalese and utilize the images under a practice called retrophotographing. Instagram is owned and controlled by Facebook. If your addiction of choice is a life on social media, please know their baseline business lives or dies on data collection. Your data. Now go ahead and use them. They're a hell of a lot of fun, but you do need to know what you're getting into. And I cannot stress enough to check all of your social media account preferences before you start writing that blog that you think only you have the rights to. Your mobile phone and your tablet. Now, when it comes to setting up a mobile device and the apps you choose to install on your phone or tablet, it's my take the user bears the responsibility to be knowledgeable here. That is, know what you're installing before you install it. It's easy peasy. Just head on over to Google and type the words security issues. 
Then simply insert the name of any app in question in front of those words. Bingo! Naked as an unclothed emperor. Anything you need to worry about will appear in your Google search results instantly. And don't hesitate to click past page one. After that, it's your choice. Treat it as if you're hiring someone to work for you. You wouldn't hire someone without some background knowledge. Look into the app's reputation. Looks good? Install. And only install apps from your phone brand's app store. For Apple, that's, well, the app store. For Android, that'll be Google Play. And for the three people out there with a Windows phone, and you know who you are, only install apps from the Windows phone store. But if you're really headed down the paranoia self-destroyer road, the most secure mobile device you can own today in 2015 is... iPhone? No. Android? No. In fact, an October 2015 ZDNet article covers a recent University of Cambridge project that revealed nearly 90% of Android devices are vulnerable to security breaches. So no. The most secure mobile device is... a newer BlackBerry. No, I haven't lost my marbles. Work with me here. Yes, the other handheld fruit. I want to stress, I'm talking about the newer BlackBerry devices. And they run a system called BlackBerry 10. Not those old bricks from 2002. Blackberries, in fact, are the handset of choice issued to members of governments worldwide, including our own. Now, ironically, there are just not that many apps for their platform these days. Coincidence? Uh, maybe. But as I said, if you've crossed the Rubicon into the world of, hey, there's cameras in my ceiling, BlackBerry's the therapy for you. And for clarity, I'm not here for product promotion. I'm just passing on the skinny. Now, someone's out there thinking, wait a minute. I was watching network news last night and our president had an iPhone right in his hand. I'm telling you, I saw it. And in fact, you are correct. Obama has gone on record as stating he has an iPhone and also an iPad. And that's very cool. But that's all that is. It's cool. Like all public limelight folks, he's got a brand and an image to maintain. And that's fair enough. That's all part of the gig. I'm sure he also has a Keurig coffee machine as well. But I can assure you, if Homeland Security needs him on the horn pronto because they just found a suitcase nuke in Central Park, they're not calling him on his iPhone. I mean, can you imagine? Can you hear me now? Now let me move over here. Can you hear me now? No, no. He's got a Fed-issued BlackBerry, or more likely, in that scenario, a quasi-classified mobile phone made by defense contractor General Dynamics running on a very, very classified network called Cipernet. About cloud services, sometimes referred to as big data. You've embraced these data storage products on your home computer and mobile devices. Products like Dropbox, Box, iCloud, Google Drive, and, and there are countless others. And good for you. They are fantastic services. Their intentions are positive, at least in concept. And for my part, nothing here is an indictment on any of these cloud providers. For starters, a note specific to all things Google. You should know that Google is essentially in the information collection business, not search. Their search service is the obvious product one would make available and monetize upon gathering said information. And as we all know, Google search is awesome. But it is so because of you. Nearly all Google products are in place to harvest your data that goes through them. And this data capture includes their most popular products like Gmail, Google Apps, and especially Android devices. Yes, your Gmail account is helping Google search results. Your Android device is helping Google Maps work better. Google churns up all the data collected and spits it out again in the form of a search result. But no, your specific email content as you write it is not a search result. 
However, there is a fragile line here because, as I understand it, it could become a verbatim search result if Google deemed it necessary. And to be fair here, this does apply to other popular search engines. All of this earns a pause in my book. Bolstering this tidbit, as of this writing, the auto manufacturer Porsche has just chosen Apple's new onboard automotive system over Google's competing system. Now, Porsche alleges Google's system will hoover far too much data from its customers. In similar security concerns, Ford has committed to BlackBerry-derived underpinnings in their new onboard systems as of the 2016 model year. I want to underscore here that Google has built a truly magical digital data sausage-making machine over there in Mountain View. I see far more upside than downside to Google's efforts. How many times did you Google something today? Yes, indeed. I've been saying for years now that the lack of information is now obsolete thanks to Google. And old Larry and Sergey have done remarkable, society-changing work. Now, if you're sitting there or you're in your car or you're jogging and you're, you're thinking, yeah, that's great, but I still don't get what this cloud thing actually is, let's take a closer look at what cloud services are and you'll have a better understanding of how your data may be in danger. Now, I like the bank analogy. You can put your money in the local corner bank and it's all locked up. Sure, the bank can get robbed, but your personal loss odds are, are slimmest if there are more individual banks scattered among the land. Simple math. This analogy is similar to everyone keeping their personal data on their own home computer or personal device. No cloud stuff. Sure, your computer can be hacked, technically speaking. But a brief newsflash here, chances are you are not important enough for someone or some group, or even a nation, to spend a ton of time and energy to access just your stuff. Sorry. Now let's throw the cloud concept into this bank compare-off. Instead of having thousands of individual banks across the land, let's imagine someone opens one massive bank to store all the money and all the valuables of everyone in the country. That's sort of the idea behind cloud services. One-stop banking, or for our purposes, one-stop storage, for all. Everything and everybody's stuff in one place. However, now the Mr. John Dillinger of the network age requires only one of everything to steal, well, well, to steal everything. Continuing the bank analogy, he only needs one set of keys, one vault combination. It's all in one location. And keep in mind, this cloud concept now goes far beyond your personal stuff and has been co-opted by the corporate world, including healthcare, HR departments, banking, retail. I can go on. And why do they do this? usually in the name of cost savings. But whose fault is it when all of this, well, when your data gets nicked? In all but a few of the data theft instances just mentioned, the failure points lie within the organizations you've trusted to hold your data. Now, those failure points can be procedural, legal, technical, or all of those combined. The banks, medical organizations, schools, retailer, your workplace, the lot of them, the responsibility for the data you entrust to them is on them. Shame on organizations that have their data breached. And these breaches often occur where IT departments are either poorly staffed, underfunded, or a deadly combination of the two. Now it's story time. A few years ago, I spoke with a guy whose job it was to crack into banks. And digitally speaking, of course, he wasn't walking around the street with a sledgehammer and a miner's helmet. And oh yeah, banks actually pay this guy and others like him a handsome consulting fee to break into their systems, and then of course they report back their findings. You know where the failure points were the majority of the time? Yes, yeah, sure, at times he found the IT department asleep at the wheel, lattes in hand. And yes, sometimes there were security issues that had really good IT departments begging for a larger budget. 
And yes, a few times, HR did hire a complete numbskull simply because he was cheap. But more often than not, the failure point was with a living, breathing person. This guy would hack his way through the system, and when he couldn't get any further, he would just call that department. And he would tell them, hey, this is John down here in so-and-so department. I'm new here. What's the password so I can get in there and do what I got to do for the day? And of course, they would pass on that password. Ouch. So my advice on all this cloud storage stuff and cloud products, I say use them. They are beyond handy. But don't get too comfy with them. Let me give you some examples. Number one, are you writing a long, arduous paper for work, maybe for school, or maybe even for yourself? Use a cloud storage service. The cloud system will seamlessly update said documents when viewed from the multiple devices you use in your daily life. Instantly share it among your desktop, your tablets, your phone. I mean, the word awesome comes to mind there. On the other hand, there is example two. Are you a photographer or a media guy? You'd be crazy to use a cloud service for your photo or media storage. I mean, those photos pay your bills. Only you have the rights to them. Imagine getting a call one morning from your friend saying, yeah, that great photo that you took and that you own, I saw that on this other website, and you're thinking, I didn't give them permission to to print that, to put that out. That's an awful experience for a, a photographer. Keep your photos and your media stuff safe. Keep them in your own ecosystem and back it up. Stay off the cloud with that stuff. And for everyone listening to this show, ditto on that extensive list of usernames and passwords you keep handy. Yeah, those quick notes on how to access your bank account or or various online accounts. Everybody's got that one Word document that has their whole life on it. Just keep it on your desktop, back it up on a thumb drive, keep it in your own ecosystem. No cloud services for that stuff, because if that stuff gets hacked, eh, guess what? All that stuff is gone in public knowledge. Credit cards. Boy, they've been in the news quite a bit in the last two years, and not for anything good. But what's a person to do? Get a smart credit card. They're called EMV chip-enabled cards. And you can actually see the embedded chip on the surface of the card. If you already have one, you can take it out. You can see the chip. It's right next to your bank logo. In fact, as of this podcast, that's October 2015, all U.S. banks are required to have replaced all of their customers-issued cards with this new technology. Now, the question begs, does it work? Well, yes. When this technology was introduced in France in 1990... Of course, here in the States, we're, you know, baby steps, a little bit behind. But, but in France, in 1990, they saw an 80% drop in credit card fraud from the user side, and that's significant. But notice I said user side. That's you, the cardholder. Keep in mind, this does not protect your credit card info once you've passed it along to that trusty online retailer. That's the other side of the transaction. For example, when Target's complete credit card database was compromised in 2013, Anyone with a chip-embedded card was still screwed. The perps still had all they needed to sell your credit card info on the black market. By the way, the final cost of this breach to Target? Roughly $10 million. And another note on this, retailers that do not now have EMV-friendly card terminals at the point of sale will be liable for any fraud associated with those old terminals. Now, in the past two years, both Apple and Google have combined the credit card concept with the mobile handset in the form of mobile payment technologies. Apple has Apple Pay and Google has Google Wallet. And oh yeah, you can use your mobile handset to pay for your goods at a retail register with compatible systems. And most retailers have this now. And yes, these systems are quite secure. 
very secure. In a recent TheStreet.com article, Sajad Ghanizada, formerly with Homeland Security and now with Hurdle, which is a support service for Uber drivers, states, mobile banking is the safest way to bank. Mobile just offers criminals few attack vectors. It requires a lot more work to compromise a mobile app or mobile phone than a website that you can have access to from anywhere in the world 24 hours a day. So, what is a smartphone-slinging, digital lifestyle, social media mainlining, cloud-using Jetson to do about all of this? Options are limited. Drastic measures would require selling all your network-connected digital gear, and of course, here in 2015 now, this even means your car. You can't sell all your digital stuff, head down to Frankie's Inkwell and Parchment Shop, stock up on said writing stuffs, and sashay back to that cave in Lascaux, France. It's not an option. But Ted, you're telling us nothing's private anymore. It's digital dystopia. Now, it's really not that bad, truly. Let's put this into some historical context. In the 1800s, the then new and booming technology called Railroad was, to my mind, the internet of the period. In fact, it spawned that period's version of e-commerce called the order by catalog business or mail order. And many of those businesses survive to this day. Barely, but they're still around. Sears and JCPenney come to mind. During this 1800s technology boom, railroads carry the personal wealth of our nation throughout until someone got the idea of robbing these trains. In 1870, the first Western train was robbed in Nevada, and within just hours, a second train was robbed. The railroads made every alteration to their cars and changed every procedure they can imagine to thwart the robbers. Nothing worked. Robbing trains became epidemic over the next five decades. Between 1866 and 1910, train robberies totaled in the hundreds. Yeah, it was popular. And think what was on the train then. Keeping today's internet in mind, money, mail, packages, think UPS or FedEx, and personal belongings, including ID documents and even jewelry. Anything you can imagine being of value to someone of the period, short of their actual home, was at risk of being lost in a train heist. And that's a lot of pretty important stuff. These theft acts all seem like stories only cinema can provide for us today. But at the time, they were very, very real. I mean, just ask the families of those who were killed during these sprees that were often accompanied with the grimmest of violence. Personal data theft and loss happens and will continue to happen. It will always be a part of our social fabric, regardless of the time period, be it the digital age or any other. The important takeaway from this show is that users of personal technology just need to be aware of the dangers and take on some of the responsibility in guarding against these dangers. Just as we lock our doors at night, you need to develop similar digital error reflexes. Work from a baseline that nothing digital is secure. And be okay with that. Your grandfather's satchel of Buffalo Nickels and Ellis Island papers were also in constant danger back in the day. What I'm saying is this. Did you just spend 45 minutes online this morning researching your new shoes for the fall? Great. But then at least take 15 minutes in a given month and check your settings on your phone. Install all security patches on your home computer. Peel back a few onion layers of information on that cool new app before you install it on your phone, rather than making a snap decision. And run the latest versions of Windows or Mac OS. Stay current on your credit card technologies. And finally tonight, about all that Google stuff. Yeah, well, it appears that as of this podcast, a major Eastern European data theft syndicate was just brought down. 
How? Because all the members use their not-so-very-private Google Gmail accounts. Google also just added extensive security features to their new version of Android. That's version 6.0. And it is fantastic. And Facebook just announced that it will notify you the instant your Facebook account has been hijacked and co-opted by a foreign entity. So yeah, all of this cuts both ways. The data security game is spy versus spy for sure. Progress is not to be just survived. It's to be enjoyed. Our digital journey is just beginning. So it's helmets on and buckle up. It's going to be one hell of a fun ride. And that is the Bucket of Bolts on your personal data security. For listeners wanting to dig deeper into the subject, I would suggest the following. Head on over to staysafeonline.org. And they're noting the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And they've got a lot of great info for consumers and professionals alike. For books, I would recommend Ghost in the Wires, My Adventures as the World's Most Wanted Hacker by the Kevin Mitnick. It's a fascinating, very easy read. And I like that it's a true sensational narrative and not a techie book at all. If you really don't want to sleep at nights, I would suggest Kim Zeter's new book, Countdown to Zero Day. Now this gets into the now legendary Iranian Stuxnet hacker mystery. It's heavy, deep stuff at times, yet it is written for the 99% of us. You don't need to be an engineer to enjoy this book. In fact, it's very Tom Clancy, but again, it is true. It's a real story. And frankly, I would say it should be required reading for all IT security professionals. For your mobile device viewing pleasure or the old television, I highly recommend the BBC TV series, Cyber Crimes with Ben Hammersley. Now, Ben keeps the fancy tech terminology in check while he explores, in the King's plain English, some of the biggest cyber incidents in recent history. Ben is simply fantastic. It's a fun watch, very educational, and the series is available right now, as I'm recording, on Netflix. So go check it out. And finally, if you have any comments or podcast suggestions, I'd love to hear from you, so do please write to me here, ted at boltbucket.net. For more on me, you can go to www.tedgreen.us. That's it for this podcast. We'll chat again next time on Bolt Bucket.